welcome to Ragbag's bonus bag. My name's Frank Burton. Here we are at the final part of getting away with it. It's all getting a little bit climactic and I do hope that this final part does not disappoint. I think it's great. I do hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Chapter 29 I couldn't be sure if my visit to Jenna's parents gave me more or less of an insight into her character. I wouldn't have called them idiots myself, but it was clear that Jenna had become the person she was in spite of her parents' intellectual capacity, rather than because of it. My primary goal was to find some small scrap of incriminatory evidence to prove once and for all that all these crimes she claimed to have committed weren't mere flights of fancy. Clearly, I hadn't found anything like that on my trip to Keswick. I suppose you could say my secondary goal was to gain a better understanding of who Jenna was as a person, and therefore be able to make more of a value judgement. This investigation of mine, if you can call it that, seemed to be hitting dead end after dead end. There wasn't much time left. On that Friday night, when Jenna filled me in on the precise details of Operation Rhododendron, she told me the exact date on which her plan was to take place, 21st of October 2004. It was a few months away, but with no more leads left to follow, there was no clear way of me making any progress. A couple of days after seeing Jenna's parents, having thought of little else but my failed investigation, I decided to focus on something else. There seemed absolutely no point in behaving any other way. I focused on my writing and my boring day job. I listened to lots of music, went for long walks. I thought about finding myself a girlfriend and went on a couple of dates. The first one didn't like the fact that I was vegan. The second was vegan and didn't like my explanation about how I'd become one. I suppose this adds some weight to my theory that culinary compatibility is more important than sexual compatibility, but I did find the whole process annoying and didn't bother attempting to find a partner for a long time after that. I went back to trying to avoid Jenna as much as possible. I knew she had no intention of discussing Operation Rhododendron on the phone or in public. The only place she considered safe was her own house, so I made a point of not going there again. I chatted with her casually on the phone now and then and met her for drinks two or three times, but always made an excuse to leave early. I just didn't want to hear about rhododendron. Just thinking about it made me stressed. I'm happy to say that with that one taboo subject off the agenda, spending time with Jenna was a lot of fun. It was just like the old days. We'd have a good laugh, we'd say whatever was on our minds, unless that thing happened to be rhododendron related. We'd talk about old times, we'd hug each other, tell each other how important our friendship was. At one point, I almost let it slip that I'd been to see her parents, but stopped myself just in time, remembering she didn't know. She'd never have forgiven me for crossing that boundary, and perhaps quite rightly so. I'd almost forgotten that rhododendron was a thing. Then, in early October, two weeks before the operation was due to take place, Rolf and Rose invited us both round for Sunday dinner. It wasn't a special occasion, they said. It had been a long time since the four of us had met up for a meal and they simply couldn't wait until Christmas. Rolf's PA arrived the day before with another suit for me to wear. 
It's nice, I said to her. How much is it worth? I don't know, she said. It's actually one of Rolf's old ones. He used to be your size. For no particularly good reason, I found the prospect of wearing Rolf's old suit rather uncomfortable. But at least she was right about the size. It fit better than my own clothes. When we met and double-kissed on the doorstep, Rolf acted surprised to see me in it. I remember that one, he said. Bravo! The wine was excellent, as always. I'd polished off a couple of glasses by the time I'd finished my starter. In a state of mild inebriation, I decided to try something. I doubted this would work, but with two weeks to go, it felt like this was my last opportunity to get somewhere close to the truth about Jenna. You know, Rose and I were talking, I said, last Christmas I think it was, right? And she told me about something her friend once said, this theory that everyone has one special person, one particular figure in their life who they're trying to impress. And everything they do in life can be seen in some way as an attempt to impress that person. I understand you have a name for it, Rolf. Rolf was already smiling broadly. I do. What was it again? Riker, he said. Everyone has their own Riker. Riker was my father's name. And off he went, as I knew he would, with a long rambling story about how everything he does is in some way an attempt to impress the version of his father who lives in his head. I'd heard the story already through Rose. Jenna was nodding in a way that suggested she'd heard it herself several times too, but that was okay. This was all part of the plan. We'd have to sit through Rolf's story before I could continue. It's fascinating, I said. Really, it is. I haven't got round to discussing it with Jenna yet, but you know what? I know for certain she'll be able to tell you who my personal Riker is. Well, that's obvious, she said. Dennis Gleeson. I clapped my hands together. Told you, I declared. Dennis Gleeson, said Rolf thoughtfully. Where have I heard that name? He was quite a high-profile journalist for a while, I said. He's written for all the main broadsheets in his time, Guardian, Times, Telegraph. Then he kind of disappeared. It's a very long story. Even longer than yours, Rolf. Thankfully, Rolf laughed at that. Well, no doubt there's a book in there somewhere. There is indeed, and I fully intend to write it one day. I'll save you the details until I get my publishing deal. Oh, speaking of publishing deals, said Rolf. I keep forgetting to tell you, Frank, I was recently back in touch with an old friend from our Cambridge days. Would you believe what he does for a living? He's working for one of the top literary agencies in London. He represents that English chap who won the booker. I forget his name. I was thinking, if I can have your permission, I'd like to send a few of your recent short stories to him. I do think they're getting better and better, Frank. I love the surrealist ones in particular. Zoom and Bloom was exceptional. It feels like you're coming out of your Vonnegut phase and into something else. I mean, I love Vonnegut as much as the next man, but... Oh my God, I said. Is that a yes? Of course it's a yes, mate. Wow. Thanks a million, Rolf. I can't guarantee you'll get anywhere with him, but a personal recommendation surely has more clout than an unsolicited submission. So I'm more than happy to help you out. The rest is down to you and your talent. You got plenty of that, Jenna said, squeezing my hand. I've always known that. I've always seen that in you. 
The reason I know the Dennis Gleason story so well is because you told me the whole thing on the night we met years ago. Remember that? I smiled and nodded. Frank and I got rather drunk, believe it or not, she continued, and we hobbled back to his halls of residence and sat in his room and he told me the whole thing in the finest detail and I thought, yes, this man's a natural-born storyteller and he's going to be big one day. I envy you for that. Not in a big way, it's not my field of expertise, but I've always wanted to be able to write strong, compelling stories, but whenever I try, it all just falls apart. My prose is so sloppy. Thanks, Jedda, I said, and thank you again, Rolf, so much. The housekeeper arrived to serve the main course, and we tucked in straight away. For a while, I completely forgot about my strategy. Then I said, But you know what, Jenna? You knew mine without having to ask, but I've been thinking about who yours might be. I can't think of anyone. You're such a lone wolf. I mean that as a compliment. You're totally self-made. Am I right? You know, Rolf cut in, this Riker thing is only a general theory. It doesn't apply to absolutely everyone. I'd say it's a brilliant theory, I said, and it applies to almost everyone I can think of, all except one person. I like the theory too, said Jenna, and I agree with it. I think everyone does have their own personal Riker, including me. Oh, I said, interesting. Who could it be? She nodded across the table to Rolf. You're sitting right there. Rolf blinked and his smile started to vanish. That's very nice of you to say, Jenna. It's true, she said. I've felt that way ever since we met. I caught sight of Rolf making that discreet gesture people make, whatever it's called, when you need them to be quiet so you run your fingers back and forth across your neck. As it turned out, Rose noticed him doing it too. What does that mean, Rolf? She said. I was trying to signal to our young friend here to change the subject, he said quietly. Too much flattery isn't good for me. I don't see why you should be embarrassed, Rolf, she said. I know we never talk about it, but we all know what's going on between the two of you. I don't know what you're referring to, he said, staring at the table. But I don't want to hear any more. There's nothing going on, Jenna blurted out suddenly. There never has been, you should know that. We all know, Rose repeated firmly. Frank knows, don't you, Frank? It's not my place to get involved in this, I mumbled. We're friends, said Jenna, that's all it is. I know you had that man outside the hotel taking pictures, but you don't know what we were doing in there. You don't have to sugarcoat any of this, said Rose. I've known for a very long time, and I've been happy to let it happen. It's been good for our marriage. It's been good for Rolf in particular. But I can't keep up the pretense, Jenna. If you're going to sit there and declare your undying love for my husband, or whatever it is you're doing... I'm not doing that, she said. I'm not in love with him. He's my Riker. That's what I'm trying to say. You don't need to be in love to have sex, she said. That's what you're doing, isn't it? No, said Jenna. It isn't, said Rolf. We've never even kissed. Isn't it? I said suddenly. No. So what the hell do you do together in that damn hotel room? 
Rose snapped. No one replied. Jenna and Rolf both appeared to be on the verge of tears. Neither could look at each other or anyone else. Can someone explain to me what's happening? I said. I thought the two of you were having an affair. We are, said Jenna, just not that kind of affair. What do you do in that hotel room? Rose shouted again, slamming both fists onto the table. A fork fell on the floor. We play, said Rolf. Don't, Jenna hissed. We might as well say it, said Rolf. Play, said Rose, like role play. That's it, said Jenna, that's exactly it. You don't need to lie, Jenna, said Rolf. I knew you were a liar, said Rose. Frank thinks you're a liar too, don't you, Frank? Easy, I said. He told me he can't trust a word that comes out of your mouth. I wonder why. Tell me what games you play, Jenna. Not games, said Rolf. One game. Always the same one. Rose attempted to rise from her seat, but her arms were shaking so much she had to steady herself on the table. She remained seated, her fingers twitching over the tablecloth. What game? she whispered. Tell me... It isn't, Rolf. Tell me it's not our game. What? I said to Jenna. Chess. That's it. You're meeting this man in secret and playing chess with him. Tears were streaming down Jenna's cheeks at this point. I'm so sorry, Rose, she said. Rose stopped trembling, seeming to gain her composure again. She rose to her feet, picked up her plate and hurled it at the wall. It missed the wall, bounced off the neighbouring chair and shattered on the floor. Get out, she yelled at Jenna. Jenna obeyed her at once. She snatched up her handbag from under the table and carried it out of the door. And as for you, Mr Kasparov, she said to her husband, when was the last time you played chess with me? I don't know, said Rolf. I thought we were evenly matched, she said. Isn't that why our games were so good? They'd go on for hours. Are you telling me Jenna's more of a match for you than me? She's a novice, he said. I was teaching her the game, coaching her on it. It's an entirely different game when it's with her. It's nothing like you and me. Look, you ought to be pleased about this, Rose. You actually thought I was having sex with that girl. I had sex with you this morning. Isn't that the way it should be? Frank doesn't need to hear about this, said Rose quickly. I should probably get going too, I said. It sounds like you have a few things to discuss. Stay for dessert at least, said Rolf. It's a good one. Next time, I said. Somehow I knew there wouldn't be a next time. Before I left, I made a point of double kissing them both for the final time. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I couldn't help a part of me wondering if this was the end for the two of them. And if they really did divorce over this, that would make Rose Valentine a single woman. But even after the plate-throwing incident, it was clear that there was only one person for Rose. And it wasn't me. I enjoyed that last double kiss. It was over so quickly, and then she was gone. I'd never been in love with anyone at that point. 
I didn't really understand what being in love meant. All I knew was I'd never been drawn towards anyone in the way I'd been drawn towards Rose. Now that I was probably going to be out of her life for good, I almost felt like crying too. I didn't though. Jenna was parked around the corner, waiting for me in the car. She'd pulled herself together by this point. She gazed idly out the window at the trees. I sat down beside her in the passenger seat. Well, that went well, I said. I don't want to talk about it, she said. OK. I have to look to the future. In two weeks' time, I'll temporarily be in possession of a billion pounds, and then I'm going to give it all away. How many people on this earth can say that, Frankie? How many of us will ever have that opportunity? You know what? I feel uniquely privileged. Are you sure you're feeling okay? I said. Not right now, she said, but I'll be fine. That's the point. Now, let's get back to Manchester, Frankie. It's starting to look like you and me don't belong around here. Maybe we never did. It was fun while it lasted. She started the car. Look, I said, that thing that Rose said about me not trusting you. Don't worry, said Jenna. I know you'd never say that. I'm just saying, she said it in the heat of the moment and it's not worth dwelling on. We blasted out some techno on the journey home which perked us both up. Just before she dropped me off at my place, Jenna casually announced, I'm going to be really busy over the next couple of weeks and obviously I'll be out of the country for part of it. I'll see you when rhododendron's done. I had to bite my lip to stop myself speaking my mind. I wanted to plead with her not to go ahead with it, but I knew she'd never listen. Also, if anything, on that particular day, I was almost entirely convinced that none of it was real. Chapter 30 the following day, I believed it again. Operation Rhododendron was definitely going to happen, just as Fido and Elephant had. There was simply too much fine detail for it not to have been true. Since day one, Jenna had always had an answer for every single question. Every single eventuality had been accounted for. Also, our visit to Rolf and Rose's place had reminded me of something highly significant. Jenna had a different kind of manner whenever she visited the Valentines, a different way of talking. It had taken me a while to figure it out, but this was what Jenna looked like when she was putting on an act. Due to the circumstances, she'd been forced to put on a front whenever Rose was around. To put it another way, I knew what Jenna looked like when she was lying. But whenever she talked to me about her criminal enterprises, none of that fake self was present. This was Jenna being Jenna. This was what Jenna looked like when she told the truth. The more I thought about this contrast, the more I began to suspect that Jenna was never a particularly good liar. She kept her mouth shut quite a lot around Rolf and Rose, and not just because of Rolf's habit of dominating the conversation. Jenna knew how to command a room herself. She'd chosen not to, because she had too much to hide. Often at the dinner table, she'd subconsciously touch her lips, the way people do when they're holding in a secret. She'd do her pretend laugh, the one where it almost sounded like she was saying the words ha ha ha. 
as you do that even when someone said something genuinely hilarious, which to be fair to him, Rolf often did. Even on those occasions, she couldn't laugh properly because she was too uptight. She was holding everything in. I felt quite pleased with myself. After all that failed detective work, it felt like I'd finally cracked this mystery simply by observing my friend's body language. Unfortunately, if this was to be considered proof that Operation Rhododendron was a genuine criminal plot, this meant that Jenna, my best friend, my sister, was about to commit an atrocious act of terrorism. Is that what it was, though? She had a point when she said it was a victimless crime, no one would be hurt, and she'd assured me that despite the presence of high-level explosives, Stonehenge would never be at risk. I believed her. So what was my problem with all this, other than the obvious point that if she were ever caught, Jenna would be in prison for life? Or worse than that. She was dealing with MI5 after all. Possibly MI6. I didn't know the difference between the two, and still don't. But I do know, they assassinate people. Was that why I was getting so worked up about this? Yes, I decided. Yes, that was it. I didn't want Jenna to carry out this plot of hers because she couldn't keep getting away with it. It simply wasn't possible for one person to do all these things and escape. And this time, it was far too serious. She was raising the level of threat, demanding 500 times more than she'd demanded before. I couldn't see how this could end well for anyone. And with all of that in mind, there was a very real possibility that all of this would end in Jenna's death. Could I live with myself if that happened? Surely it was my duty to somehow stop all of this nonsense. But how could I possibly do that? I didn't know. I had no idea. And so, instead of doing anything, I carried on living my life. I carried on living my life until 21st of October 2004. That afternoon, I was sitting at my desk at work and I realised my hands were shaking. It reminded me of the way I'd seen Rose's hands shake during our encounter a couple of weeks previously. This made my hand shake even more. Are you okay? said the girl sitting next to me. I'll get through it, I replied cryptically and returned to punching numbers into my spreadsheet. Because of the shakes, I ended up doing it much slower than usual. I had a deadline by the end of the day which I didn't meet. Under normal circumstances, I'd have stayed in the office until the job was done. But there was something more important I needed to do. I needed to drive to Salisbury. According to the internet, it would take me four hours without traffic. It was 5.30pm, so I was bound to be slowed down a bit. Still, I could feasibly get to Stonehenge well before 11.30pm, which was when the helicopter was due to land. As for what I would actually do when I got there, I didn't know yet. All I knew was, I needed to go there. I couldn't face sitting in my flat staring up at the clock. Not this time. My hands weren't shaking anymore. I set off driving. I don't remember much about what happened during that drive. I don't remember actually thinking about anything. Perhaps my mind was in such a whirl, it was impossible to form a complete tangible thought whilst also focusing on the task of driving the car to Salisbury. I do remember I was sitting in traffic for a while, but that was normal. It was Manchester at 5.30. By the time the traffic eased off, I'd already been in the car for two hours. I needed to stop to get some petrol. 
and thought I should probably eat something as well, even though I wasn't hungry. This was 2004, and it was virtually impossible to buy vegan food in a motorway services, unless you were happy to eat a dry loaf of bread or a banana for your dinner. So I did what I would usually do in these circumstances and cheated slightly. I bought a KFC bargain bucket and ate it in the car park. I thought about that woman I dated a while back who didn't think I was vegan enough. I just bought a new phone which had a camera on it. This seemed like the height of sophistication. I considered taking a picture of myself munching on a chicken wing and sending it to her as a joke, but I didn't suppose she'd find it all that funny. So instead, I ate all the chicken and checked my phone to see if I had any messages. There were six missed calls from my parents' landline. My best guess was my mum had fallen asleep on top of the phone and her elbow kept pressing redial. I called her back. Hello, she said. Mum, I said. Yes, she said. You called me, I said, six times. Was it that many? She said. Yes, it was. Well, I'm sorry to call that many times, she said. It probably looks like some kind of emergency. Is it? I said. Is it what? Is it an emergency? Yes, she said. What kind of emergency? I mean, no, she said. I mean, it's not a matter of life and death or anything, or, or maybe that's exactly what it is. It's difficult to tell. And it's difficult to categorise these things. Maybe you could just tell me why you're calling, I said. I can decide for myself then, can't I? Quite, she said. So? Right, she said. Well, yes, well, you see, what happened is, Frank, your dad has gone missing. I haven't seen him since last week. One week ago today, in fact. He told me he was going out to buy some milk. I said, OK. And that was the last I saw of him. He's not gone to work. He's left all of his things behind. We've had to call the police. Really? I said. Do you think that was the wrong thing to do? She said. No, obviously, if someone goes missing, you have to call the police. I mean, I just said really because that's what I say when I hear something like this. Not that this has ever happened before. What are we supposed to do now? I was wondering if he's been in contact with you, she said. No, not for a long time. Last time I saw him was my last birthday, which was nearly a year ago now. When were you born? She said. You don't remember? Not off the top of my head. 27th of November, Mum. Same day as Bruce Lee and Jimi Hendrix. Who? Never mind. So, you're right. That means it's been almost a year. Did he say anything about wanting to leave or anything? He did, actually. Oh, good. What did he say? He said he was thinking about leaving you and he hadn't done it yet because he didn't want to let me down. I said he wouldn't be letting me down and he could do what he wanted with his own life. Oh, he didn't mention it to me. Well, that was up to him, I suppose. Again, it's, it's his own life, isn't it? I suppose so. Listen, Mum, I said, I'm right in the middle of something at the moment. I appreciate you calling me and telling me about Dad. I'm sure he's safe and well, and I'm sure he'll be 
in touch when he wants to be. Have you guys been arguing or anything? No, we never argue, Frank, he said. We have an understanding between us that it's not something that we do, so we don't do it. Or at least we didn't. He's gone now. As I say, I said, I really have to go, but I'll speak to you soon. Hopefully there'll be some news by then. What kind of news? You know, news about Dad, news about him being okay, not being dead. I see. Bye, Mum. Chapter 31 It was 8pm by the time I'd left the motorway services. I'd been sat at the wheel in the car park, thinking about my dad for a while, then Jenna's face would pop into my head and I'd start thinking about her again. It was too much all at once, too many things I couldn't control. All I could do was drive to Salisbury and see what happened when I got there. At the very least, perhaps I could finally have a front row seat for one of Jenna's secret spectacles. Then, half an hour later, the car started spluttering and slowing down. With the news about my dad, plus all the rest of it, I'd forgotten to fill the car up. I hadn't even noticed the light was on. I pulled into the hard shoulder. I'd never bothered signing up to a roadside rescue service, so I didn't have a number to hand. I may have had a flashy new phone, but it didn't actually have the internet on it. And so I went for a walk to find an emergency phone, which took me about 10 minutes. Then I had to wait for an hour for the van to come to tow me to the nearest petrol station. By then it was 9.30pm, two hours until kickoff. The sat-nav claimed I had three hours left to get there. According to Jenna, there wasn't going to be several hours negotiations this time. They'd be done within the hour, which meant I was wasting my time. After filling up the car, I left the petrol station and parked up outside yet another KFC. My hands were shaking again. I closed my eyes and tried to forget all of this was happening. I tried to convince myself it was all just a story, but I couldn't stop it from feeling real. By contrast, the fact that my dad had gone missing seemed like some kind of practical joke. It was just a sort of careless, insensitive thing you'd expect from Frank Burton Sr. At least it was easy to forget about my dad. The whole thing felt like none of my business. In a way, it provided some kind of distraction from what was about to happen. I stuck some music on the stereo and lay back in my seat. I tried thinking about nothing for a while, which actually worked out quite well. Two hours later, I was still there, in that very spot, thinking about nothing. I was halfway through my second playing of Underworld's Second Toughest in the Infants. I glanced at my watch, almost 11.30. The helicopter would be in the air, just coming down to land. I counted down from 10. Jenna would be dialing the number right now. This time, she had a direct number for the security services. Whoever answered the phone, she would quickly instruct them. My name is Len. I don't know the full name of the man I usually negotiate with. His first name is Imran. He'll know who I am. Wherever he is right now, you need to contact him and tell him that I've flown a remote-controlled helicopter into the middle of Stonehenge with enough explosives inside to destroy the entire site. This will happen unless I receive 
one billion pounds. A fax is being sent through to GCHQ as we speak with the full details. Get me Imran and I'll call him back in 15 minutes. Oh, and one more thing. I want to speak to the Prime Minister this time. Get him on the call too. Bye. She would then end the call. In the 15 minutes between hanging up and redialing, the Stonehenge site would be surrounded by armed units on all sites. This would be immediately flagged as the highest level threat to national security. 11.45. Jenna would make a second call and be connected to Imran, just as she'd demanded. Len, Imran would begin. I'm out of the country at the moment, so there may be a delay on the line. I'm out of the country too, she'd reply. Maybe we're next door to one another. Wouldn't that be fun? I don't consider this fun, Imran would say. Seriously, I was hoping we'd never speak again. We definitely won't, after tonight, Jenna would say. You have my personal guarantee. I want to state categorically I will never pull a stunt like this again. I'll never even break the law again. I'll be a total saint. That's just words though, isn't it? Imran would say. It was just words when you vowed to track me down and bring me to justice, Imran. But to be fair to you, I believe you fully intend to do that. I've taken you at your word on that. Please do take me at my word. I fully appreciate that we can't carry on like this. So let's consider this my final trick, my grand finale. Compare yourself to a magician if you like, Imran would say, but you and I know there's no such thing as magic. Will Mr Blair be joining us, she would say. The Prime Minister has been made aware of this threat and I can't guarantee it, but yes, Mr Blair will be joining this call in due course depending on how long it goes on for. In all honesty, I'm hoping it doesn't come to that. I have a few things to say to you which might put a dampener on your plans. That's all I'm saying. I know what you're going to say, Jenna would say. You're going to play your trump card straight away. Okay, Imran will say. What's my trump card? You're going to say, Len, and then you'll do that little pause of yours before asking the question, just to keep me on my toes, and then you'll say, Are you a woman? You won't even give me a chance to answer the question before adding, You see, we've been analysing your voice patterns. It's always been clear that you've been using a voice distorter, making you of indeterminate gender. After analysis by a series of independent experts, it's now considered beyond doubt that you are in fact female. Very good, Imran will say. I wouldn't call that my trump card though. It only cuts out half the world's population as potential suspects. As a matter of fact, the voice analysis narrows you down geographically. The voice distorter disguises your accent somewhat, but it's believed you spent most of your life in the northwest of England, most likely in a rural area of either Lancashire or Yorkshire. You see, we're getting closer, aren't we, Len? Or should I call you Leanne? Step by step, we're getting closer. Aren't you at all concerned about the fact that I knew you were going to say that? Jenna would reply. This would suggest I was aware all along that recordings of my voice were going to be subjected to rigorous analysis, would it not? And surely, if I knew that all along, and if I'd anticipated your experts spending hours and hours trying to identify me by the tone of my voice, 
I would make some effort to adopt a different regional accent and mimic a feminine tone of voice in a bid to cause deliberate confusion. In short, Imran, this ain't no trump card, it's a joker. Let's focus on the matter in hand, Imran says. You're asking for £1 billion of public money or you'll destroy Stonehenge. I'll tell you straight away, Leanne, we are not going to do that. We're not settling with you anymore. This has already got way out of hand. Don't call me Leanne, Jenna would shout down the phone. I find that extremely offensive. Sorry to offend you, Len, Imran would say. I was hoping you'd overlook that and focus on the point I'm making. We are not giving you one billion pounds. There is not a chance on this earth of that happening. I'll need to hear that directly from Mr Blair, she would say. No offence, Imran, but I really do need to talk to the organ grinder on this matter. But while we're waiting for him, why don't you fill me in on your reasoning behind that decision? That was always our position. It's been our position since we last spoke. I told you we would not accommodate any more of your requests. It's been our firm policy since then. My colleagues have been thoroughly briefed in case I was unavailable when you inevitably called us again. Everyone has been told, the Prime Minister included, that if the terror suspect known as Len contacts us for any reason, we are not to negotiate. Does this have anything to do with the lack of explosives last time? I've got them now, as you can very clearly see from the photographs I faxed across. I'm more than happy for your bomb squad to go in and inspect the helicopter. It goes without saying that if they try to tamper with anything, I'll blow them up alongside Stonehenge. We don't need to risk lives by sending a team in there, Imran would reply. I'll take your word for it that this is a credible threat. In all honesty, it doesn't matter whether it's a real live bomb on that chopper. We are not paying you a billion pounds. We are not paying you a single penny. Whether it's an actual bomb or not is a moot point. Moot point, Jenna will say. That's a weird thing to say, Imran. Do you care whether Stonehenge gets destroyed or not? If you're assuming the threat is real this time, you can also assume that I'm ready and willing to press that button. That's all it'll take. A touch of a button and that ancient, historical site, a site of immense religious significance as well as an utterly irreplaceable piece of British heritage. The idea that I may or may not destroy at the touch of a button is a moot point, Imran. Would you like to rethink your choice of words there? I wouldn't, Imran would reply with an air of smugness about him. I've seen the information you sent across. I haven't had an opportunity to fully digest it yet, but our ballistics experts have, and they're telling me You've made a miscalculation. Really? How? This is a powerful device, all right, and it will have a devastating impact on the ground. Mostly, it will have a devastating impact for you because you can't just build a bomb like this in secret without leaving a trace. We will catch you, Len. We will catch you because of this bomb. You won't. And it's you that's miscalculated, as you put it. We haven't. That bomb will not destroy Stonehenge. There will be superficial damage requiring a reconstruction project costing significantly less than £1 billion. 
Don't get me wrong, Len. I absolutely do not want you to detonate that bomb. But based on the damage it would do, it's recoverable. Also, to the untrained eye, it would look exactly like a helicopter crash. A freak accident rather than an act of terrorism. From a PR point of view, I think we're on to a winner. Funny you should mention PR, Jenna will say. We've never really talked about what might happen if the public knew about these conversations we'd be having, Imran. As it happens, I have it down on my list of things I wanted to talk about. I'll wait for Mr Blair to join us first. Again, while we're waiting, let me put something else to you, Imran. I assume that since your voice analysis reports have been added to my file, I am now being officially classed as a woman from the north of England, is that right? That's our supposition, Len. The interesting thing is, I think, without meaning to, your ballistics team have underestimated me. In the back of their heads, they're assuming I couldn't possibly construct a bomb of this calibre. A man could have done it. A man from the south. But a woman from the north. That may have been the case if the ballistics team were populated entirely by men from the south, Imran would say. They're a diverse department, and I don't think in this day and age elite officers of their rank would have those kind of prejudices. Forgive me if I'm making assumptions myself, Imran, Jenna would say, but I think you know that's not true. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but you're not a white middle-class man yourself. You'll have had to work harder than most to get where you are. And as you climbed each rung of the ladder, there were people above you who underestimated your talents for the simple reason that you're not one of them. I see what you're getting at, Imran would say. Maybe I'm playing you at your own game, Len. Maybe my name's Jonathan, but I've given myself a Muslim name so that I sound like an underdog. And if you think of me as an underdog, Len, that gives us a different kind of bond, male or female, north or south. One thing I know about you is that you consider yourself to be an underdog. It's you against everyone else. What makes you say that? You have a point to prove. That's what this stunt of yours is about. I get the impression you're not interested in money. The only reason you're asking for a billion pounds is to prove that you can. You might be right about that. Interesting. What's that you just wrote down in your notes? I'm not taking notes here, Len. Rich, you're adding that to your list of suppositions. I seem to be corroborating your theory that money isn't important to me. So you're making a quick note to add something to your file. I'm rich, you suppose, because rich people are the only people who don't care about money. I'm a rich woman from the northwest of England. You're getting colder by the minute, Imran. You really are. Len, I do know that you're rich. We've paid you four million pounds. Now, one moment, please, Len. The Prime Minister is joining us on the line. Hello? An additional voice would say at this point. Hello, Prime Minister. All right, Tony, Jenna would say casually. I'm up to speed on what's going on, Tony Blair would say. So feel free to continue as you were. Is this the actual Tony Blair, Jenna would say. You sound like an impersonator. It's the impersonators who sound like me, 
Blair would reply. Some of them are quite good. You sound very chirpy given the circumstances, Tony, Jenna would say. I suppose that's what got you elected, isn't it? Your chirpiness. I'd like to think it was something to do with my policies, Blair would respond. Do you have a PR man with you telling you what to say? That wouldn't be necessary. This isn't a public conversation. It could be, though, Tony. I'm recording the call. I can make it public at any time if things don't go my way. Your man Imran here doesn't seem too fussed about Stonehenge being destroyed, which I thought was a bit weird. But of course, he's underestimating me because he thinks I'm a woman. But you, Tony, I think you are different. I think you'll be thinking a little more strategically. Imran reckons if I detonate that bomb, they could make it look like a helicopter crash. I think you'd be more inclined to use the disaster for political gain. This could be classed as an act of terrorism perpetrated by Islamic extremists. You'd be quite happy to spin that line, even though you know it isn't true. There is absolutely nothing political about this crime. I don't care about your war on terror, but I absolutely do not wish to be associated with it. And if that happens, Tony, if I detonate this bomb and shortly afterwards the UK government announces that Al-Qaeda have destroyed Stonehenge, the first thing I will do is release the audio files of this conversation as well as evidence of my previous two encounters with the security services in which the public may be surprised to discover this government of yours, this tough-talking government who would never dream of negotiating with terrorists, paid me £4 million. I'm telling you now, Tony, that is what will happen. There will be a short period of silence on the line. Are you there, Tony? I can hear you loud and clear, Blair will reply calmly. Rest assured, there will be no lies told about this. If it all comes out, then it all comes out, and we'll deal with it when the time comes. Please be assured there will be absolutely no circumstances in which this threat will be associated with any terror group other than yourself. He's good, isn't he? Jenna will say with a slight chuckle. He sounds so sincere. Thanks for that, Tony. The question is, Blair would say, where do we go from here? What I suggest, Jenna would say, is that you get yourself a second opinion on that bomb. All the details are there in those documents alongside a detailed structural analysis of Stonehenge itself. This operation has been years in the making. I've done my homework. I suggest either one of two things have happened. Either your ballistics team have made a massive error of judgment in telling you this bomb will only cause superficial damage. This may be because they're in the middle of an emergency situation and haven't had time to really focus on the facts. Or, as I've suggested, maybe it's because they've wrongly assumed I'm a woman from the north of England. A country bumpkin at that, not a tough inner city woman from Liverpool or Manchester who could no doubt cook up a bomb like this in their sleep. The second possibility is that Imran is lying to me. The ballistics team have confirmed that the reports I faxed to GCHQ would indeed suggest that this bomb is more than capable of reducing Stonehenge to rubble. But Imran has decided to throw me off, casting doubt over the plan in an effort to unsettle me. 
Either way, it's the wrong thing to do. Underestimating me is the wrong thing to do. Lying to me is the wrong thing to do. I think we all want to do the right thing here, Len, Blair would say. What makes you say that, Tony? We can't all be doing the right thing. Surely you don't think I am. Well then, it seems to me that everyone has a moral code of some kind. I do, and I'm sure you do too. The men who flew those planes into the World Trade Center had a moral code too, as twisted as it was. I believe that evil exists in the world, but very few people recognize themselves as evil. It often seems to me that extreme acts such as this one are committed by people who consider themselves as righteous and just, and who knows, maybe they're right, Len. Maybe you're right to do this. There are perfectly sensible members of the UK population who believe me to be the devil incarnate. I have my own opinion on that, but what I'm saying, Len, is that I'm not passing that kind of judgment on you. I do think you're threatening to do a horrific and unforgivable thing, and I really hope you don't do it. You really are good at this, Tony, Jenna would say. I feel like I believe everything you say. It's quite extraordinary. Are you like this all the time? Of course. You'll come off well if I release the audio online, I think. I really don't want you to do that, Len. I really do want to avoid that at all costs. You hear that, Emran? Jenna would say. At all costs, he says. Why didn't you put me on with this guy sooner? For the record, Blair would cut in, and this is no disrespect to Imran's good work whatsoever, but if I'd have been present during your first extortion attempt in Skipton, I'd have said no. For better or worse, my decision would have been don't pay this man. Let him knock the castle down and we'll deal with the fallout from that. It's always been my belief that the decision to pay you that date was a mistake because it gave you license to commit a virtually identical crime a few months later, which put us in a much weaker position. That decision was not made by our friend Imran. It was made by high-ranking officials within the security services. I was unaware of how the situation had unfolded until the next day. The second payment of £2 million when you repeated the trick in Carnarvon, was authorised directly by myself. I felt it was the right thing to do at that time strategically by paying you the first time we'd given you that power, the power to ask for more. And now here you are asking for more again. Many, many times more as it turns out. And I'm thinking, where will this end then? It ends here today, Jenna would respond. There is absolutely nothing left for me to do from this point on. I have achieved my life's ambition, my life's goal. This is what this has all been leading up to, this one final act. Pay me and you'll never hear from me again and this will all disappear. No one will ever know what happened here tonight. Don't pay me and I'll destroy Stonehenge. I'll also have no choice but to make the recordings of these phone calls of ours public including what you just said, Mr. Blair. Thank you for that. That's a crucial bit of evidence you just gave. You confessed outright that you were fully aware of the two previous occasions on which the UK government negotiated with a terrorist. 
Not a good look for you, Tony, is it? All this war on terror business. What would your American friends think of it? As you quite rightly suggest, Blair would say, they will never find out. Is that a yes? Jenna would say. Are you authorising the release of those funds, one billion pounds? I am, Blair would reply. You will receive the money in due course. I don't think there's anything more to say. I have more to say, Jenna would say, but she'll be distracted by a beeping sound on the line, indicating that Blair has left the call. Oh, she'll say instead. Nice talking to you, Prime Minister. You got lucky there, Imran would add. For the record, I agree with the Prime Minister's judgement on what should have happened during our first encounter. And if I was in his position, I wouldn't be paying you a penny tonight either. I'm likely to get in trouble saying that at this stage, but what the hell, it doesn't matter, you've won. You've won again, Len. But you're not going to keep on winning. There is absolutely no way you will keep on winning. Your luck will run out. I seriously am retiring, Jenna would say. No hard feelings, mate. For what it's worth, I think you're really good at your job. This is the last time we will ever speak, but I'll remember these conversations and I'll look back on them fondly. I really do wish you all the very best. I suppose I'd better say the same to you, Len, as insincere as that sounds. Now, as the Prime Minister stated, there really isn't anything else to say. Goodbye, Len. Goodbye, Jonathan. Given the urgency of the situation, the money would appear in Jenna's account within minutes. On receipt of its signal, the helicopter would rise from its position and depart in a southwesterly direction. An hour or so later, it would sink itself to the bottom of the Atlantic, never to be seen again. I sat in the car park outside that KFC, clutching the steering wheel, eyes closed, as I pictured the chopper's descent. A strange sense of calm overcame me, as if I knew for certain these things were really happening just as Jenna had told me they would. The first two times I'd been on the edge of my seat, wondering where she was. Had she done it? Was she safe? Now, for whatever reason, I knew. I also knew what I had to do next. Chapter 32 I'd made no plans to meet Jenna at the airport this time, but I knew she'd be half expecting me to meet her at the gate. She'd call me when I didn't show up. She wouldn't get through, though. I'd changed my number. A few hours after her arrival back in Manchester, I received an email from her saying simply, Are you OK? I deleted it. A couple of evenings later, she knocked on my door. She called through the letterbox. Frankie, I'm sorry if I've upset you, mate. I really want to tell you all about it. She paused, waiting to see what would happen. It all went according to plan, just so you know, she said. I was hoping we could celebrate. I know you were against the idea, but come on, give me some credit. Even the Blair stuff. He said all the things I said he was going to say. This was so well designed, Frankie, it had to go down that way. It was the only way things could have happened, so that's what happened. 
She paused again, offering me another chance to speak. Do you not believe me? She said. Is that the problem? Another pause. I came to the door and sat down on the mat. I peered at her lips through the open flap. I can't talk to you any more, I said simply. Why not? She said. It's not because I don't believe you, I said. And it's not because I objected to Operation Rhododendron. It's you. You're driving me insane. I know you don't mean to be like this. No one means to be the way that they are. I've had lots of fun, but on balance, it isn't worth all the stress. Being your friend is the most exhausting experience of my life. I understand, she said. Really, I do. And I respect what you've said. I'll leave you alone. Thanks. Can you open the door so I can give you a goodbye hug? Sorry, I said. No. Come on, mate. For old time's sake. If I give you a hug, I said, I won't be able to let you go. And that's what I need to do. She got up and left without another word. For the rest of that day and during the weeks that followed, I was happy with how that conversation went. She may have stormed off at the end of it, but still, I'd said exactly what I wanted to say and she'd responded by respecting my wish not to see her anymore. It was by no means the perfect end to our friendship, but as I kept on telling myself, this was the way things had to be. As an unfortunate consequence of all this stuff, my friendship with Rolf and Rose appeared to be over too. I emailed Rolf a couple of times to follow up on his offer of sending some short stories of mine to his contact in London, but he didn't reply. The second email bounced back at me with an automatic response saying Rolf no longer worked for that company. I only had his work email address, no phone number. I did have Rose's mobile though. I was reluctant to contact her given what had happened last time, but my curiosity about Rolf's friend and the faintest promise of literary stardom got the better of me. In mid-December 2004, I texted her saying, What are you guys up to for Christmas? She replied, Sorry Frank, we're overseas. Half an hour later she texted again saying, X. After three hours of wondering how to respond, I replied, X. That was the last I heard from her. I spent Christmas on my own. I almost considered going to see my mum, but I couldn't be bothered. I thought about my dad quite a lot, wondered where he was, but didn't ponder too hard over it. Mostly, I missed being at Rolf and Rose's place. I missed Jenna most of all. I didn't miss the things she did or the things she said, but still, I missed her. I missed being in her presence, sitting next to her at the table, watching her eating through the corner of my eye, but all of that was over. I knew that. There was nothing to do but remember it and move on. Months passed, but these feelings didn't go away. More than anything, I wanted to tell Jenna what I was up to. I wanted to show her my new short stories. I wanted to tell her about my dad going missing. I never got a chance to say it. I was starting to get more and more interested in what actually happened to my dad. 
Sometime in September 2005, I called my uncle Claude to ask a few questions about some suspicions I had about a secret flat my dad and his friends were hiding from their wives and partners. Suddenly, I'd become motivated to find out more about it, and after that phone call with Uncle Claude, I was all fired up to launch my own investigation. More than anything, I wanted to tell Jenna all about it. It was a source of mystery she could have solved in her sleep. Why had I decided not to see her anyway? Maybe it wasn't anything to do with her. Maybe it was to do with me. She told me all these stories about her life as a criminal mastermind and I couldn't handle it. There was so much that was good about our friendship. We had such terrific conversations. There was no one else in my life that I could talk to in the same way that I talked to Jenna. What I said to her was right. She was driving me insane. But that wasn't it. It was perfectly true. She was driving me insane. But that wasn't the reason our friendship had to end. Our friendship had to end because I didn't trust her. That was it. That was why Jenna had no real friends apart from me. And now I wasn't her friend either. No one could trust her. Rolf and Rose were out of the picture. Who else did she have? And now, here I was, feeling sorry for her. Missing her and wishing I could tell her all about my dad. But the fact remains, I couldn't trust Jenna McIntyre. I couldn't trust a word she said, and the moment I let her back into my life, I'd be hooked back into her stories. Her next project, whatever that happened to be, would be the story that would dominate my life for the following year. I was tired of Jenna's stories being the centre of my life. I had my own made-up stories to tell. I decided once again to forget about Jenna, so that's what I did. Instead, I started thinking about my dad and all the questions I didn't have an answer for yet. Amongst those questions was another one, a question that belonged to an entirely different investigation. I'd already asked myself this question many times and never reached a satisfactory conclusion. Why did Jenna recruit me as her inside man, not once, but twice? If all these stories of her were true, I was part of that narrative. I'd been spied on by MI5 or MI6, or some other even more secret government body that no one even knows the name of. Jenna had admitted she was expecting them to investigate me. Now that she'd struck again, presumably MI5 had investigated me again without my knowledge. They'd have discovered nothing of interest, of course, just some guy living on his own, writing harmless fiction on his computer. I quite liked the idea that someone from MI5 was reading my short stories for coded clues. Maybe they liked what they read. Maybe one of them also had a friend in London who worked for a literary agency, but probably not. The question remained, why had Jenna been willing to put the two of us at risk like that? She'd sent me that email shortly after Operation Rhododendron saying, Are you okay? All it would take would be for me to have replied saying, I'm unhappy with you threatening to destroy Stonehenge, and that would be the end. This story would have ended in a very different way. As crazy as it sounded, everything about this story made perfect sense apart from that. She'd involved me for no good reason other than wanting me there, wanting me to see. But why? Why did she want me to see what she was doing? 
she could just as easily tell me about it later. Was it something to do with culpability? If things went wrong and she was caught, I couldn't be relied upon to testify against her, given that I was technically an accomplice, which meant her only reliable witness was no longer reliable? Was she really that cunning? She was. But that wasn't it. That wasn't the reason I was there in those two castles, sending her bits of information that could have easily been gleaned from elsewhere. I was there because of what? Suddenly, my father's disappearance was no longer the biggest mystery I had to solve. This was. But how could I solve the unsolvable? Surely this would have to remain one of those questions that would never be satisfactorily answered. But then, I had another thought. It wasn't exactly coherent because it occurred while I was sleeping. I dreamt about Jenna, about that first night we had together, sitting up talking in my room. I told her the story about Dennis Gleason and how I'd love to write a book about it someday once I'd properly learned the craft. But suddenly, we went forward in time and we were sitting together at Roll from Rose's table and Jenna was saying, And I thought, yes, this man's a natural-born storyteller and he's going to be big one day. I envy you for that. I've always wanted to write strong, compelling stories, but whenever I try, it all just falls apart. My prose is so sloppy. And then we went backwards in time again back to that first time we met in the student union bar and Jenna was saying you'll write about this one day and then we raced ahead to a drink we were having alone the two of us in her house and she said you'll write about this one day and then we flash forward to the night in the hotel when the two of us danced to that electronic song and she said you'll write about this one day I'm right there in my dream state. It all made sense. I'd solved the unsolvable and the answer had been right with me the whole time. I opened my eyes. Just to confirm that this wasn't one of those dreams that immediately disappeared on waking, I said the words out loud. You'll write about this one day. Then I wrote it all down at two in the morning just so I wouldn't forget. On waking the next morning, my scribble notes didn't make much sense, but as I sat up in bed and stared at the paper, it all became clear. I got dressed, downed a cup of black coffee, raced out to my car. I was supposed to be at work that morning, but I'd have to be late. I had to go and see Jenna. I turned up at her house at 7.30am, I knocked on the door, assuming she was still there, getting ready for work. A woman answered, but it wasn't Jenna. I could hear kids running around in the background. Sorry, I said, I'm looking for my friend, Jenna. Jenna McIntyre, said the woman. I get mail for her sometimes. Do you know where she's moved to? I have an address somewhere, said the woman. She closed the door in my face and went off to find it. I heard the woman reprimanding her kids for a while. After five minutes, I considered knocking again, just to remind her I was there, but she returned with a slip of paper. She'd scribbled an address on it. 
If you wouldn't mind mentioning to her, said the woman, perhaps she needs to let some of these companies know she doesn't live here anymore. She gets an awful lot of junk. I'll be sure to tell her that, I said. I think sometimes she just needs to be told. Okay, said the woman, pulling back a little. I don't mean that in any kind of sinister way, I said. It sounds sinister now that I've said it. I'm not some kind of abusive partner who's trying to track her down. I'm a friend who's concerned about her. And to be honest, I really need to get my kids ready for school, she said. But I'm glad to be of help. Thanks, I said quickly and raced off to my car. Jenna's new address was 15 minutes drive away. I was there in 30 with traffic. When I got there, I had to double check the address on the scrap of paper. Apparently Jenna had moved from a four bedroom house to a block of flats. That house had always seemed so big for her, but still, that didn't explain the sudden need to downsize. I took the lift up to the ninth floor and knocked on the door of a flat. It was 8 a.m. and I was expecting her to have left for work at this stage. I knocked again, just to be sure. A woman answered the door, and she closed it again in my face. I couldn't be sure it was actually Jenna. It didn't look anything like her. She was wearing a tracksuit, and her hair was all scrunched up. Is it you? I called out. Of course it's me, said Jenna's voice. Can I come in? I said. She opened the door again and wrapped her arms around me. She smelt different. Same cigar smoke, but a different kind of perfume. I'm sorry, she said quietly. What are you sorry for? I said. Whatever it is that I've done wrong. You don't know? No, I really don't. Can I come in? I said. Of course you can, she said. I stepped inside. The extractor fan was whirring away, but the room remained thick with smoke. I noticed a lit cigar in an ashtray on the coffee table. The flat consisted of one room with a kitchenette, plus a bathroom to one side. There was a two-seater sofa in the corner opposite a single bed. I took one of the seats. Jenna sat down on the floor and grabbed hold of her cigar. How come you're here? I said. Oh, she said, the flat, you mean? Yes. I had to sell the house. I gave up everything I had, really. I just... The thing is, it went really well. What I said through your letterbox, it was all true. I talked to the Prime Minister on the phone, and he gave me a billion pounds. It's just... None of it was intended for me. As you know, it's all gone. Spread throughout the world to countless good causes... I've always got that to be proud of. I did that. No one will ever know, but that's not the point. I wasn't doing it to be famous or anything like that. I've never trusted famous people. I've never trusted you, I said rather bluntly. I don't blame you, she said, taking another puff on her cigar. Why, though, I said. Why did you have to sell the house? What happened? A miscalculation, she said. That's all it was, human error. I was down by 300 grand. Once all the suppliers had been paid off and the accountants and the technicians, I miscalculated how much money I had left available to give to all these charitable causes. Two million pounds is an easy amount to work with. 
if you make a little error, as I'm prone to do, I'm not the best when it comes to numbers, you can sort it out somehow, redistribute something or other, but if you extort £1 billion from the British government, you have to redistribute it immediately in order to stop that money being tracked. And if you're £300,000 down at the end of it, which amounts to something like 0.0 whatever percent of the amount you started with, so what I'm saying is it's easily done, well, you end up having to sell your house. My God, I said, is that really what happened? Yes, she said firmly, that's really what happened. That's what I'm telling you. Why else would I be living in this walk-in wardrobe? Do you think I want to be here? Have you paid the debts off, I said, to the suppliers or whoever it was you owed it to? She nodded. So this is a short-term residence, right? You got a good job? Not anymore, she said. How come? I was only on a 12-month contract. They renew it every year. Only this year they decided not to. Nothing I've done wrong. Cutbacks. What about your books? I thought you were making good money from that. I was, she said, but I invested everything in rhododendron. Now the Americans have banned both books as well, and the website's been pulled down. There's nothing I can do about it. You can't even sell them on eBay anymore. You have people who can help you out, though, don't you? What about Rolf? Jenna glared at me through the cigar fog. Really? she said. Oh, I said, point taken. They've moved anyway. He's taken a new job in New York. Really? I can't quite imagine Rolf on Wall Street. Well, that's where he is. That's the way it goes for these people. Even so, he can't be walking around saying things like, I love Vonnegut as much as the next man. They won't know what he's talking about. I'm sure his massive salary will help him adjust. But what about you? What are you going to do? I'm applying for things, she said. It's a highly specialised field, that's the problem. Not many positions available, and they all have this awkward habit of already being filled. Something will come up, I said. You're lucky. I think my luck may have run out now. Anyway, I said, this isn't why I'm here. I'm not here to see how you are. In all honesty, I'm probably here to make your day a little bit worse, and I'm sorry for that. No, she said. Seeing you has made this the best day for a very long time. Well, I'm here to find out exactly what our friendship meant to you. Meant to you, I stressed, because clearly we're not friends anymore. But my suspicion is we never were friends in the first place. You were playing me the whole time. What makes you say that? You recruited me to participate in your life of crime. You had all the contacts all the resources you need. You didn't need my input in the planning or the execution. All you needed was an eyewitness. One man who's good at telling stories, who you can nurture and train up to be your biographer one day. You'll write about this. You said that a lot. I never really thought about what that meant until it came to me in a dream last night. You didn't want a friend. You didn't need one. All you needed was someone who could tell your story. That's what all this has been about. It's all been one big story. 
There have been plenty of times over the last few years when I've suspected not all of these crimes of yours actually took place. But really, it doesn't matter whether the story is true or not. You've designed it that way. You've designed it so that some people will take it as fact, while others will consider it an entertaining legend. In either case, you're making yourself into a mythical figure with me as your scribe. This whole thing is like a work of art, Jenna, and I suppose I should congratulate you on that, but also, I'm actually pretty furious about it. What are you furious about? I'm furious because I thought you were my best friend, I thought you were my sister, but you're not. Listen, Frankie, she said, you're wrong, okay? I dropped a few hints about wanting you to write my story one day, but that doesn't mean we weren't friends. Sure, I said, but only because it was necessary for us to be friends, because your plan wouldn't work without me, your ultimate plan, that is, your plan to become the next Robin Hood or whatever. Not the best comparison, Frankie, and also I think you're missing the point. This friendship was just as real as anything else in this world. Do you know how heartbroken I was when you said you didn't want to see me again? Do you have any idea how devastating that was for me? It was much worse than when things ended with Rolf. That thing you said just before I left, it was like a line from a film. If I give you a hug, I won't be able to let you go. It made me cry. That's why I went racing off without saying anything. Okay, Jenna. Okay, I believe you. I believe that's what your reaction was, but surely you can see my point that this was never a normal friendship. Of course it's not a normal friendship. That's what's so great about it. Normal friendships are boring as hell. I don't know, I said. Maybe it wasn't the friendship that was abnormal. It was you. I'll take that as a compliment. Just tell me one thing, I said. Did you know about that Rolex? Jenna took a thoughtful puff on her cigar. Interesting, she said. I knew it, I said. Knew what? I said, did you know about the Rolex? And you said, interesting. You didn't say what Rolex, you said interesting. What's interesting about that? I just wasn't expecting you to say that, she said. I said interesting because I was racking my brains trying to figure out what you meant. Did you steal a Rolex from Rolf's place or something? Rolf didn't own one as far as I know. He didn't much care for status symbols. Come on, you must know what I'm talking about. I promise you, Frankie, I don't. I can tell we're not going to get very far with this. Well, tell me, she said. I'm interested to know. It doesn't matter. Listen, I'm really late for work. I'm going to have to go. I looked down at Jenna, sitting on the floor, in a cloud of thick smoke. I'd never seen her like this. It really felt like a flame inside her had been snuffed right out and no number of cigars were going to reignite it. Somehow, this hadn't been the big confrontation I'd imagined it would be, but I hadn't been expecting to find Jenna in this state. Then she said the most wretched thing I can imagine her saying. I couldn't figure out if she was saying it for effect. She said, I'm not allowed to smoke in here, you know. They'll probably throw me out, but it's my only pleasure now. I said, it's just an idea, Jenna, but 
Maybe you could reconnect with your parents. She scoffed. I went to see them, I said. I know you did, she said coldly. It's fortunate that I've forgiven you for it. You really shouldn't have given that book to that corrupt private detective, though. I'm more upset about that, to be honest. How do you know about that? I said. I can investigate people, too. The point I'm making is you shouldn't be here on your own when you have two perfectly decent people who'd happily have you return to the family home. Sure, they're not your intellectual equals, but they're your mum and dad. Maybe now's the time to give them a call, at least. Jesus Christ, perfectly decent people. What evidence are you basing that on? Going round their house for a cup of tea? You don't know them, Frankie. I learned plenty about them while I was there. And sure, maybe they're not educated like we are, and they're a little un-PC at times, but it really does feel like you were wrong to call them idiots. Really, she said, a little un-PC. That's one way of putting it, Frankie. Tell me, while you were there... Did you happen to hear my dad's views on non-white people or homosexuals? Maybe you heard my mum's opinion about women's rights or how to deal with the homeless. If not, maybe you could pop back there and find out, then come back here and tell me that they're not idiots. I dare you. Okay, I said, obviously you know them better than me. I'm just saying maybe they're worth another chance. I don't like the idea of you being here all on your own. In a minute, I'm going to walk out of that door and I'm never going to see you again. Just tell me you'll consider it if worse comes to worst. If you cared, you wouldn't be leaving, she said. That's true, I said. I don't really care. I was just trying to be nice. I'm sorry if that sounds a little bit brutal, but... I'm glad you came, she said and I could tell that she meant it. You know what, I said, I think I can hug you now. I can hug you and then I can let you go. She was on her feet a second later. I'll go for that, she said, and wrapped her arms around me for one final time. I'm sorry, I whispered. What for, she said. I'm sorry that I'm leaving. Don't leave then, she said. I have to. I know. Thanks for understanding. One more thing, she whispered in my ear. Before you go, I just have one small request. When you write your book about me, you remember the title we discussed, Getting Away With It? I'm not going to write it, Jenna, I said. Believe me, it's not going to happen. It will, she said tightening her grip on me for a minute. You'll do it. Not right away, but in 10 or 15 years' time, when you've properly mastered the craft and you've got a couple of other books under your belt already, then you'll be able to do it. The story is simply too good to keep to yourself. I can see that instinct within you, Frankie. You're angry with me, and I understand that, but those feelings will fade and that instinct will kick into gear. The compulsion to tell the best possible story you can. You'll forget about how you think I tricked you into being my friend and you want to let people know what happened. You want to tell the world about Jenna McIntyre. 
It sounds like I'm making this part up, like I'm inserting these words into Jenna's mouth, knowing what I know now, and what you clearly know too, that I did end up writing this book. I even took her up on the suggested title, because after all, it's the perfect title for Jenna's story. And you know what? Maybe I did imagine that part. That's the way I remember it though. I remember her making that prediction, and I remember thinking this was some further evidence that she'd finally lost the plot. All I can tell you is what I remember, as distorted as that may be. I do know she said this though. This next bit is definitely what she said. So this favour, she said, when you write this book of yours, please use my real name. Why would I do that? I said. You'll get arrested if anyone actually takes it seriously. Oh, there's tons of Jenna McIntyres. But there's only one from Keswick with a criminology doctorate. You'll be easy to track down. No, I won't. I'll be long gone by then. Long gone? Don't tell me you're... Oh, I'll be still alive, Frankie, but I won't be around anymore. I won't be contactable. I'll have a new identity. Probably a new nationality too. What are you planning? I said. She held me closer still and said softly in my ear, Maybe this was all part of my plan, Frankie, you walking out and leaving me so I can disappear forever. Was it? I said. I'm just teasing, she said, keeping you on your toes until the very last moment. Well, how do you know I won't call the cops on you? I said. You don't seem in the least bit worried about that. For one thing, you'd be reporting me for a crime that never officially took place, she said. Secondly, I know you, Frankie. I know you wouldn't do that, just as I'd never do that to you, no matter what. OK, I said. I need to go now. It's been quite an experience knowing you, Jenna McIntyre. Remember the name, she said. I will, I said. So that's what I've done. I've used Jenna's real name. I'm pretty sure, if you're listening to this, you're probably not an MI5 agent or Tony Blair or anyone who might feel they've been compromised in some way by these facts being made public. You're probably just an ordinary person. If you've made it this far, I'd like to think we have a certain level of trust between us at this point. And you can keep a secret, can't you? Chapter 33 I arrived for work an hour and a half late after leaving Jenna's place. My boss bought my excuse that I'd been mugged. She even said, you look like a wreck, which was kind of funny, but also quite apt, I suppose. I arrived home from work at about 6pm. There was a police car parked outside, which I assumed had something to do with one of the other residents. But no... As soon as I stepped out of my car, a pair of uniformed officers approached me. Frank Burton, said one of them. For a very brief moment, I thought, she's gone and done it, hasn't she? She's gone and confessed to the whole damn thing. But I knew she wouldn't do that. I also knew that if she had, it wouldn't have been just these two officers patiently waiting for me to return home from work. There'd be a whole team busting through the doors of my office, armed to the teeth. Then the reality hit me. 
they'd found my dad. It wasn't good news. Frank Burton, Jr., I said carefully. This confused them a little. What? said the other one. Is this about my dad? I said. The gentleman we're looking for matches your description perfectly, said the first officer. So, it's not about my dad, I said. Frank Burton, I am arresting you on suspicion of committing actual bodily harm. You do not have to say anything, but actual bodily harm, I said. That's ridiculous. I don't even know what that is. Actual as opposed to what? Imaginary bodily harm, is that a thing? We have reason to believe that on 17th of June 2002, you assaulted a man named Harold Weinberger. 2002, that's three whole years ago. I don't even know anyone called Harold Weinberger. The incident took place in an antique shop in Hebden Bridge. This was probably the wrong thing to do at this point, but I burst out laughing. Oh, oh that, I said. That was nothing, mate. Self-defence. He was trying to steal a book off me. You broke his nose. It was a good book. That would constitute actual bodily harm. And why is it taking you three whole years to get around to this? It's taken us some time to track you down, Mr Burton. Well, why? Because I'm a criminal mastermind with a knack for misspelling my own name. Pardon? said the officer. Am I in trouble for dangling him off that bridge as well? Or was it just the assault? Sorry? Oh, I said, forget I said anything. I think I'd better exercise that right you mentioned, the one about remaining silent. You do that, Mr Burton. You're awfully polite, I said. In the car on the way to the station, I couldn't help asking. Just out of interest, have you guys ever commandeered someone's vehicle? How do you mean? said the arresting officer. Like if you're pursuing a suspect on foot and you need to access someone's car, so you approach a member of the public who happens to be in their car and you say, I'm commandeering this vehicle. Ever done that? It's not really the done thing, he said. I thought so, I said. You're aware that you yourself are in fact under arrest, don't you? He said. You don't appear to be taking this very seriously. I've never been arrested before, I said. So I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to behave. Just an impartial word of advice, the man said. That right to remain silent thing is just a suggestion, but sometimes it's for the best of all concerned. You'll get a solicitor. I suggest you speak to them and take their advice. I will, I said. Chapter 34 So, I spent six months in prison. That's where I met my friend Noddy, who I'd like to tell you more about in my next book. When I got out, me and Noddy launched our own investigation into what had happened to my dad. I've already written a book about that. It's called Everything I Am. You should read that one if you haven't already. It's very good. With all of that stuff going on, I spent very little time thinking about Jenna. To this day, I've had no contact with her since that final meeting in her flat. There have been times when I've thought about her over the years. I thought about her in 2007 when the British government implemented a ban on smoking in public places. I wondered whether this would be a big enough incentive to kick her own habit, or whether I'd bump into her in town, puffing away at her cigar under an umbrella in the rain outside some bar. 
I thought about her that same year when I met Heidi, who I suppose you could call the love of my life, if that's still a thing that people say. I couldn't help comparing the two of them, even though Jenna was never my girlfriend. And a couple of years later, when Heidi left, I couldn't help thinking that this was how Jenna had felt when I walked out on her. The circumstances weren't all that different. I thought about her in 2009 when my first book was published. I wondered if she'd look me up online and buy herself a copy. I wondered what she'd think of it if she ever got round to reading it. I never solved the mystery of the Rolex. But in 2013 I spent an entire year of my life wandering the streets searching for lost property, adhering to the strict guidelines that Jenna had laid out in her Finders Keepers study. I'm happy to report that this is an extremely satisfying and highly lucrative means of making a living. The only reason I stopped was that I became distracted by other things, which at some point will become the subject of yet another book. I thought about Jenna every time I heard the electronic song, Getting Away With It, which I've been consciously avoiding, but still, a couple of times a year, it pops up on the radio or the TV, or even one time as a distant blast of noise through a car window, and I thought, They've got that turned up awfully loud. They must really like that song. I understood how they felt, whoever they were, because I loved that song myself, and it was a shame that I couldn't bring myself to listen to it anymore. But that's the way it goes with songs. There are millions of other songs, just as there are millions of other people. Then I thought, maybe it was Jenna in that car, blasting out our song. I remembered what she'd said. I'll be long gone. I wondered where she was. I thought about her in 2018 when I started doing my podcast. I imagined somehow she might be listening. Maybe she'd be comforted by the sound of my voice wherever she was in the world. I thought about her in 2019 when I watched Notre Dame Cathedral engulfed in flames on the news. I thought, maybe she's gone to Paris. Later that year, I moved out of my flat and started touring the UK in my camper van. I thought about Jenna then too. I thought about how nice it would have been for her to visit me on the road from time to time. I mentioned on my podcast that myself and my friend Benedict were planning a bank heist. Not a real bank heist, just a hypothetical thing, just to prove to ourselves that it could be done. We'd made extensive notes and I kept them safe in the van with me. I mentioned this on the podcast too. I didn't say where the notes were kept exactly. But one night, in the summer of 2020, the rear doors were forced open while I slept. The notes, which were tucked in a folder beneath the microwave, were stolen. When I woke the next morning, it took me a while to figure out what had happened. The damage to the rear doors was obvious, but nothing of value had been taken. My laptop, my wallet, my phone, my locked box with my dad's old drawings inside all still there. All that was missing was mine and Benedict's notes. I suppose I'd better call him and tell him what had happened. So that's what I did. He didn't answer. He called me back later in the day. I said, what were you doing, mate? This was an important call. He said, I was homeschooling my children as it happens. You never mentioned having kids? I thought you knew this already. I don't mean to sound harsh, Benedict, I said, but your children are not important right now. Our notebook has gone missing. You know the notebook I mean, that notebook. So what have you done with it, he said. 
It wasn't my fault, I said. Someone took it. This was a targeted attack. Someone who listens to the podcast heard what I said and somehow they've tracked me down and stolen the notebook from under my nose while I was sleeping. This doesn't make any sense, said Benedict. Who would do that? Who would even know you were there? You're of no fixed abode. Even I don't know where you are right now. It would have to be someone who listens to the podcast regularly, I said. There aren't that many of them. I can probably name most of them based on their shout-out requests. Surely they wouldn't make themselves that conspicuous, said Benedict. Also, this person would have to be highly skilled in the art of detection, I said. As you say, I'm a difficult man to track down. This person, this man or this woman would have to be... Hang on. What? It's a woman. It's definitely a woman. Sorry, mate. False alarm. It's nothing to worry about. I've realised who took that notebook. It's an old friend of mine. Who? I won't have mentioned her. So why is she breaking into your home in the middle of the night? Doesn't sound like much of a friend. She's not a normal friend. Hmm, said Benedict. I'd probably say the same about you, Frank. Well, I've learned from the best. So this friend of yours, this abnormal friend, what is she going to do with our notebook? She'll probably carry out the heist, I said. It's the sort of thing that she would do. You don't sound too worried about it, said Benedict. No, I'm not, I said, and neither should you be. I suggest you go back to your children and forget this conversation ever took place. OK, said Benedict, I'll do that. If you're happy, Frank, then I'm happy too. I've never been happier, I said. Let's just keep an eye on the news. I'd better go, he said, but I'd love to hear the full story sometime. You will, mate, I said. You definitely will. Thank you for listening. If you've made it to the end of this book, congratulations. I uh, appreciate your support and I am very pleased that you have listened to this thing all the way through. It means a lot to me that people are engaging with my work in this way. It's a wonderful thing and thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Also, if you want to buy yourself a copy, Amazon, links are in the show notes. Further details on my website, frankburton.co.uk. Thank you once again. Back to business as usual again next week. I will see you very soon.